0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We've got another great show for you this week. We're going to talk to Nick Weaver, who is a security researcher at Berkeley. He's got a lot of really great insights about how to protect your computers and especially your mobile devices. Uh, we'll be getting to that here shortly. Uh, before we do, though, we're going to start with a little bit of news of the week. And if you uh, haven't seen this, I can't imagine how that could be possible. The, the big news this week is the uh, the virus they're calling WannaCry uh, I've, it's also called one, of Crypt and a couple other weird things. I don't know where they get these names. I, I really don't, uh, probably the first person, first researcher who finds it gets to name it. And you know, I'm sure there's some notoriety in that anyway. So you've probably heard about this and the way you probably heard about it was that it was traveling a like wildfire. It spread across the globe, literally, uh, in a, just a matter of hours. And it was hitting some really big name, uh, uh, places like hospitals in the United Kingdom, uh, it hit some uh, telephone companies, and uh, eventually spread to the US, and then all of a sudden stopped. Why was that? Well, we're gonna talk about that today. So the WannaCry virus is technically what we call a worm. It's something that spreads itself. So unlike a lot of the viruses that we talk about, uh, that you know, usually requires some user to make a mistake, to click on a link that shouldn't, to open an attachment that they shouldn't. This is actually just exploiting a a, a vulnerability in Windows machines that allows it to spread itself. Uh, Once it's on one computer, it it looks for other computers on the network that have this vulnerability and just spreads. There's really nothing to be done. Now, luckily, uh, this thing was kind of stopped in its tracks by, um, I guess you could call it a mistake. It was more of a feature, but it turns out that there was a way to halt this. So we're going to talk about all that. First of all, what is it? So WannaCry is a a piece of ransomware, uh, and this ransomware uses some bugs that were released by the shadow brokers, uh, which uh, we don't know, but everybody kind of believes that uh, this is stuff from the NSA that was kind of stolen and leaked somehow from the NSA. And it used bugs that were released uh, in, in, the, in that dump that came back in I think it was March or April uh, to infect Windows systems. Now, one of the things we need to note about this is this was almost completely preventable by a couple for a couple reasons. First of all, Microsoft had fixed these bugs somehow. Uh, the speculation is that the NSA, when they were being threatened uh, that this stuff was going to be released, actually went to Microsoft ahead of time and said, "Hey, this stuff's going to get out." Uh, We were holding on to these things, but uh, now that they're going to get out, well, hmm, maybe you should patch this. Maybe you should fix these problems before they become an issue. So uh, Microsoft fixed these bugs uh, in March. Now, they fixed these bugs for the supported systems, and we're going to talk about that aspect here in a second. But So if you had been keeping up to date with your patches, with your system updates, you should be just fine. Uh, and actually in, in this particular case the, the the bugs that they were exploiting were really more for business systems um, uh, it used a feature of Windows called SMB uh, which most people in their home uh, networks are probably not using and furthermore uh, the the connection mechanisms that you know that that expose this SMB thing this um, the, this Uh, this thing that you use for windows computers in particular to talk to each other over the network is usually blocked by your internet service provider or maybe your firewall. So the chances of your, you know, your average everyday person being affected by this were actually pretty small, but uh, businesses, however, uh, particularly businesses that had older windows machines were vulnerable and that's what we saw happen. So this bug uh, uses these exploits that were, that were, that were, kind of leaked from the NSA, to travel from computer to computer in record time. It hit You know, I think they were estimating upwards of 100,000 computers in just over a few hours. It looks like it may have started in the U.K., or maybe that's where just the first major uh, infections were. hit a lot of hospitals. I think there were 12 hospitals hit in the U.K., uh, which is obviously just awful, right? Uh, The hospitals had to suspend operations. I I don't know for a fact that anybody was injured as a direct result of this. You know, maybe computer equipment not working, causing problems. Uh, nevertheless, though, uh, obviously that's a really bad situation. Um, and then, as this was spreading, and, and the and the security uh, people out in the world were watching this, you know, spread quickly from computer to computer and country to country. Um, one guy figured out that the software, when it first comes up, goes and looks for this domain name, and a domain name is like when you go to Google.com or Netflix.com or Yahoo.com. That that name is the domain name. And buried in this uh, in this virus uh, was this really weird domain name and and it went looking to communicate with this with this computer at that domain. And crucially, if it could communicate with that computer, then it didn't do anything. Now sometimes the uh, hackers use this to try to figure out whether or not they're running on some sort of a, a test system so they can try to fool security researchers. Uh, into uh, you know the virus not activating uh, unless it was on a, a non-test uh, system. I'm not exactly sure how that worked in this point, but th- this researcher figured this out, and the domain name actually was not registered. So it was some weird gibberish, long gibberish name. Um, and this researcher just basically went out and registered the name, and then all of a sudden, the virus went looking for this domain name, and that computer responded. And so they just went dormant. So that was a kind of a lucky lucky happenstance and a series of events that kind of stopped this thing in its tracks now the people whoever wrote this virus or whoever wants to do something similar a copycat is going to fix that problem next time so so we can't count on that to stop it next time so but that was kind of a lucky happenstance here that, that that somebody figured that out and was able to stop this thing from propagating much further so what do, you, what do you need to know? So like, like I said, if, if for regular people at home, this is actually probably not an issue for you. Um, most computers, uh, home computers, do not have this particular feature active. It was the business businesses that tend to have this computer, uh, businesses with lots of networked computers. Uh, the other issue here is that while Microsoft did patch this for all supported Microsoft Windows systems in March, They didn't patch it crucially for some of the older ones that were no longer officially supported by microsoft and that's where things kind of got ugly because some of these older systems uh, in hospitals and whatever are still running windows xp uh, which you may recall is an old version of windows and microsoft abandoned support for that i think three years ago Uh, but even so uh, because of this microsoft actually broke its well went back on its support policies and issued an emergency patch for Windows XP and some of these older systems uh, that allowed this to propagate. And that, that brings me to my next point. And I think the bigger issue here for all of us to consider, and, and, and as concerned citizens and consumers, is that, first of all, stay up to date. And my, uh, my guest, uh, Nick Weaver, is gonna uh, bang this drum as well. You've gotta stay updated. Uh, the only way to, 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 to prevent most of these things from traveling as fast as they are is to be basically inoculated. Um, and by that, you need to have the latest software because um, bugs are found all the time. And fixes go out as soon as they can go out, uh, and you need to have those fixes on your computer. So keep your systems up to date. Make sure you've turned on your auto-update features for your operating system, and this is not only just your computers, but also for your mobile devices. But the other issue here is that, you know, software gets old and so microsoft has to cut corners somewhere and they've got to save costs so they have to say well we can't we can no longer support some of these old versions and so they don't put out patches but unfortunately there's still a lot of systems out there that still run this old software uh and those systems are going to be vulnerable forever now this was a weird case this was such a bad virus that microsoft basically stepped out and said okay we'll fix this one thing um but in reality, what these people need to do is they need to get their systems updated. And that's these businesses, unfortunately, it's a cost of doing business. You're going to have to get your systems updated and make sure that you're on a supported version of Windows so that you get these critical updates. Because if you don't, this stuff's just going to keep happening. All right, now we've got a great interview today with Nick Weaver from Berkeley, and before we dive in, being a security researcher, this guy does his stuff for a living, and he rattled off a bunch of terms, and I didn't want to stop him all the time to try to define these things. I know most of you probably know these terms, but before we get into it, I just want to do a quick glossary so you're not completely lost uh, when he starts rattling off some of these terms. So one of the first things he talks about is the threat model, and that's a kind of a fancy security term. All it really means is kind of examining uh, where you're vulnerable. Uh, that's all it is. So you know, if you've got a bunch of different kinds of software, it's you know, what versions of software do you have? What applications are you running? Uh, what kind of computer are you on? All these things uh, kind of uh, lead into where are the chinks in your armor by knowing what kind of armor you've got. So uh, that's that's the threat model. Um, he talks about patching, which of course I just talked about as well. That's all that means is uh, updates. A patch is a fix. So uh, if there's a bug in something, a patch is what fixes it. So um, keep your software up to date. Keep it patched. That's what he means when he says that. Um, He also throws out Bitcoin, which you may have heard just in the news. Bitcoin is a digital currency that it's basically untraceable. Uh, So that's, of course, what a lot of these bad guys like to use to get paid uh, is Bitcoin. Um, And I know that makes it sound bad and say, hey, why do we even have Bitcoin? Well, there's a lot of good uses for Bitcoin as well. Sometimes you want to be anonymous. Uh, Unfortunately, kind of like encryption and some of these other tools, they could be used for bad purposes as well. So Bitcoin uh, basically is a digital currency. Uh, It's recognized the world over, um, and if you ever get a virus, you'll probably find out what Bitcoin is because that's usually what they will charge you to fix it. We also talk a, a little bit about uh, two-factor authentication in here, which I've talked about before. Multi-factor authentic- authentication basically means you need more than one thing to, to get in. So usually it's one factor. It's usually it's a password. Um, uh, two-factor would be something like a password plus a, a PIN code that you uh, receive on your phone via text or something like that. Uh, so multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication or what he mentions in here is U2F or universal two-factor uh, are all just methods for requiring something else beyond just a password to, uh, to access your accounts. And what that means is the bad guy not only has to figure out what your password is, but he's got to have your phone or he's got to have this special key or he's got to have this pin code or something else It it requires two things. Like it's kind of like on the old nuclear missile submarines, right? When the, the captain and the, uh, his first mate or whatever, both had the keys to the, to the nuclear missiles and they both had to turn them at the same time, right? Two different ways. It's, It's a protection mechanism to make sure that, uh, somebody who just gets one of those can't go off and do something bad. All right, and with that, I'm just going to lead right into the interview, and let's hear what Nick has to tell us. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. You'll find a whole host of shows and a great lineup back at AmericaOutloud.com. And also, get the apps. We now stream 24-7 on Android and Apple. Just look for America Out Loud Talk Radio. All right, and with me today is Nick Weaver. He's a security researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a computer science lecturer at Berkeley. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we've got uh, we talk about a lot of subjects in in particular sometimes, and I I think today now that we've got a real for real and for true security guru on the line, uh, <laughs> I'd like to kind of step back and take a thirty thousand foot view and just talk talk about let, let's kind of walk through the, the the threats that an everyday person is going to face. Let's we got plenty of areas to talk about, but um, just just in general, let's just kind of start off with the the the, the question: what you know, you hear a lot about the heavy-duty spy stuff, you, you know, and the Snowden things at NSA and whatever, but, it, you know, as the regular Joe sitting at home, you know, trying to live their life, what are the real things that they have to worry about on a daily basis?
1: Well, it's as I like to put it, threat, model, and chill. <laughs> so you have ninjas out there, the the NSA, Fancy Bear, etc. But for most people, you actually don't have to worry about it. Um. So what you have to worry about as a typical user is crooks and intimate partners. Mm. Those are the two big threats. And even if you're somebody like me who actually does technically have to worry a little bit about the nation state attackers, I've got a bit higher profile. (laughs) I'm not too worried. So. I'm worried about them doing stuff that's cheap. I'm not worried about them risking a million dollar asset. So as a consequence, um, I design my defenses around the model of who do I have to defend from? I got to make it expensive for bad guys and I got to be harder than the average bear. And I want systems for me. I have a great relationship with my girlfriend, but I know that for some that's not the case, and the computer security field does actually a remarkably poor job about explaining the real-world threats faced by people's intimate partners and defending against that.
0: Interesting, interesting. All right, so let's talk about it a little bit. So I think we're all kind of, you know, uh, we're aware of the, the cyber hackers are always worried about getting viruses or getting phishing scams, and we'll, we'll talk about those. Uh, but I, you know, let's talk about the intimate partner thing. So explain that to me. Why, why is that a a common threat for most people?
1: Well, it's not for most people, but it's for far too many people that if you want to go online, you can buy spyware that is specifically marketed to find out if your spouse is cheating on you Hmm. by turning on the microphone and tracking everywhere the phone moves and, uh, and all sorts of things like that. That's really abusive stuff. And that's enabled in no small part due to the poor security on Android phones. That Android phones are so woefully insecure by for the most part that really it's a disservice to people that they're even on the market. <laughs> because you give a bad guy access to your Android phone in five minutes and they can turn it into a bug.
0: Wow, yeah, so I, I think that one of the principles this comes down to for me is that once you have physical access to the device, so so many of your common protections just go out the window. And so many of the things that that you know that we normally talk about in you know resisting mass surveillance or mass fraud, you know tends to be internet based protections, but have, but once you know if you've got an intimate partner or someone who has physical access to your computer or phone, it's a whole different story.
1: It depends on the phone, though, that a fully patched iPhone, for example, is actually really tough, that if, if you look at Apple's security model, they're worried about things like jailbreaks, which is somebody with physical access to the phone being able to subvert the security system. And so that actually is a reasonably strong device if you keep it patched. And so, for example, if I was in charge of a domestic violence shelter, one of the things I'd do is I'd have a stack of clean iPhones. And the moment somebody is being intaked, I would swap their phone before they even get to the facility because of this particular threat. But if they have an Android phone, I can't secure an Android phone for the typical teenager, <laughs> let alone the real-world threats that a lot of people face.
0: Interesting. So why is why is it so different? Why why is Android so much farther behind than uh, the Apple iPhone?
1: Because it comes down to patching. That the first rule of security is thou must be able to patch, hmm. so that. When an exploit is discovered, when a vulnerability is discovered, if it's disclosed to the vendor, if the vendor finds out about it, they can fix it, you can download the patch and be protected. Apple, it's easy. We discover a zero-day exploit for an iPhone. It's a $1.5 million asset these days. We tell Apple, within 20 days, they have a patch pushed out, and anybody who says, yes, I do want to update my phone, gets updated, and Apple will support phones for five years. Now, with Android, if you have a Google phone, a Pixel, the same thing happens. Google comes up with a patch, pushes it out to the phone, and it's all fine and good, except that your brand shiny new Pixel phone is only guaranteed three years of support from the time Google started selling it. That's bad. (laughs) And then it gets worse. For all the other Android phones, you see Google comes up with a patch, publishes the patch so that, well, anybody can see it, which makes it a lot easier to exploit it, Sure. hands it off to the vendors. The vendors then have to port to their particular phone, assuming, of course, that Qualcomm is willing to support that old chipset with the latest release. hmm so, and the vendors have no incentive to patch because they've made what little money they make on the phone when they sold it they have no recurring revenue and so they may or may not come up with a patch and if they do they then hand it off to the phone companies which get no real recurring revenue from securing the phone and sending out a patch so they may or may not send out a patch and so securing your typical android phone is like if your windows update required dell and comcast to sign off of on on it and neither of them cared (laughs) as a consequence to secure a android phone or to secure an iphone you just keep it up to date To secure a Google Pixel, you keep it up to date and replace it in two years when Google has decided to stop supporting that particular phone. To secure any other Android phone, you power it off and throw it in a landfill and buy yourself an iPhone. (laughs) It's it's actually a tragedy on the phone front that security is a luxury good, that the cheapest secure phone you can buy actually new is an iPhone SE. Um, because the Google phones are actually more expensive now.
0: Yeah, and I think, and, and I think that's why Google probably came out with the whole Pixel line in the first place. I think they were frustrated by that, uh, but because there are so many barriers between getting those fixes out uh, directly to their customers, and Android, of course, is was you know was the brand that was suffering because of that. Did, do you
1: agree, or do you know? I think it's the opposite. That I think Google has given up. So the Nexus line of Android phones were Google, and they were cheap because Google actually subsidized the price on them. So they would sell what would otherwise be a $500 phone for $250 because Google effectively wanted to use Nexus line as a hammer to get, hey, other OEMs, this is how you do Android, this is how you do it right. And Google has effectively given up on that because the Pixel phones are now not inexpensive. They are more expensive than comparable iPhones. And so although Google is continually being frustrated with the Android OEM's lack of patching, the, the Pixel line is not demonstrating that. The Pixel line is demonstrating that Google has basically given up on the bulk of the Android ecosystem.
0: Now, so could we extend this to that? Does this apply as well to tablets based on those those, those same operating systems? So, iPads are.
1: Yeah. So, if you have a tablet as an iPad, an iPad is probably the strongest thing you can buy as a tablet computer. Uh, If you have an Android tablet, you're at the mercy of the tablet maker providing updates. And that has historically been a very, very poor place. And since the rule number one on security is keep your stuff up to date, I as a security professional cannot recommend anything that by design doesn't stay up to date.
0: And what about the what about uh, other than the and I, I hear you and I've actually preached the same thing. Are there any other fundamental differences between the operating systems or, or the devices on Apple and Android that makes uh, Apple inherently more safe? I, you know, I know there's all sorts of uh, fancy technology which would we lo- we'd lose our people in jargon, but is is there any uh, uh, are the operating systems that run these devices any fundamentally different other than the patching strategy?
1: There is a bit more on user interface, so. Apple for a lot longer has designed the user interface on apps and what apps are allowed to do and not do in such a way that they are more sensitive to users' privacy. So for example, a Apple app has to request permission to access the microphone when it wants to use it for the first time. Well, Android up until the latest version had this long list of permissions that you just had to say yes or no. Now, Apple's approach has finally been adopted by Android, but so many things are running older Android, so they don't benefit from a more user-friendly way of providing app permission. So for example, the, the spyware I was talking about at the beginning, that stuff, runs very well on Android because you can load an arbitrary program on Android. While with Apple, you're only allowed to load programs approved of by Apple. But also, when you load that program on an Android phone, it gets its permissions and then can do everything. While with an Apple device, you can't run in the background and listen on the microphone. You're not allowed to actually run in the background continuously as an application unless you're doing something like playing music. And if you have the microphone on and you're temporarily in the background, a huge red bar appears (laughs) up at the top of the screen. Yeah. And these are specifically designed to notify people. Likewise, location. Location. Apple always goes up and does something. And when an application accesses location in the background, it does a big, bold blue bar for while that's happening. Well, with Android, there's a course application permission or a course location permission that's opportunistic. So Facebook application for the longest time, I don't know if it still does, basically every few seconds goes, hey, uh, where am I? Oh, but don't tell the user I'm asking And if you don't know, don't bother. And so when some other application asks for location, you get the little arrow popping up and the Facebook application now knows where you are, but it does it in a way that disguises to the user that Facebook is getting this at all. Um, Again, I think Google may have cleaned this up finally, but there's so many old Android out there that those vulnerabilities will last forever.
0: Yeah, and just to, and I know this seems a little esoteric, so I, I thought I'd bring this home. As you were talking about this, what struck me as a, a, a recent, and I've actually seen multiple cases of these, but it's come up again where uh, some of the Android apps uh, and the Android and the and the and the actual uh, Android store, the the official the uh, Google Store, the official store, uh, are listening for ultrasonic tracking beacons being played by other devices and perhaps your television things like that, so they can track what you're watching. So for example, the, the case I saw was uh, you know, a television show or a commercial will play this sound at a frequency too high for your human ears to hear, but the application running in the background in your Android phone can hear it and they could say, oh, this guy's watching the good place or this or whatever the case may be. Right.
1: Yeah. And that works because of Android's permission model is too generous that all but the latest Android, you get permissions as a whole so the application can listen, the applications can run in the background, and when the mic's on, there isn't a big flashing red bar going off that, hey, the mic is on. So you can do an application on an iPhone that listens for these beacons, but if you run in the background, you get noticed. If you run in the foreground, you don't have the red bar, but you still have had to ask permission for the microphone. And somebody's going to ask, why are you asking permission for the microphone in the first place?
0: Right. And I, I think on Apple, I know on Apple, you could, you could go after the fact into settings and you can actually see every application on your phone that, that you've allowed access to the microphone and change your mind later. I know that for a long time on Android – I think maybe this is what you were getting at before. The first time you installed it, you were given a laundry list, and after that point, you were not able to go back and and uh, go back and pick and choose. Oh well, yeah, this I don't want I changed my mind. I don't want this app to be able to use the microphone, but I still want them to use, you know, other things that they asked for because that makes sense for this app. It's a gaming app. I want them to be able to use motion sensor, but they don't need to know my they don't need to use my microphone. My understanding is on an Android Maybe you can clear this up. Is that is it? Can I now do that on the modern Android system? Can I? Pick I believe and
1: so. Okay. That certain permissions on Android are now prompt on first use, so you can say, "Okay, I want you to do this or not." But it's a relatively new thing that that happens. That old Android didn't have this. And this gets down to a larger thing that so much of security is really usability in user interfaces, that you have to build your system so that it's intuitive towards the user. And in general, if something always fails, like phishing emails or the like, that is no longer something that's the user's fault. That's the fault of the system that allows it to happen.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I, you know, and, I, and I don't think it's cynical to say that I, I I, don't think these are necessarily oversights by some of the, by some of these companies, I think some of these, th- some of these things, let's face it, Google is an advertising company. They're not, you know, they're, they're not a phone company. They're not an email company. They're an advertising company and you know, Apple is not. And at the end of the day, yeah. there's, there are different, you know, reasons why they may or may not be allowing some of these things.
1: If you're getting something for free, you aren't the customer, you're the product. Or yes. the other way I like to put it, Silicon Valley has two successful business models. Sell shiny stuff, which is Apples, and sell people's souls.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, that, that's that's a pretty stark contrast. I like the comparison mm-hmm. though. So, as we were talking there, you threw out the term zero day and I and I have defined this in the past, but let's let's talk a little bit about what that means and why and, and, and a point that we made in uh, discussing this prior to the interview, um, why, uh, why they're so expensive and, and, and why we, we as regular average users probably aren't too worried about them using them on us.
1: So a zero day is a vulnerability that nobody else knows about. And actually building a zero day for a modern system is often really expensive. So we have a good insight into the iPhone. A zero day for the iPhone, so something that can fully take over the iPhone, you first have to take over the web browser. Once you're running in the web browser, you have to get the underlying operating system to inadvertently leak out some information that you need, and then have another vulnerability that you can exploit, taking advantage of both that vulnerability and the leaked information in order to take over the phone and start running. So if you want to buy this on the open market, and there is a market for this, it's $1 million plus for this thing. And so if you use this to attack somebody and they don't notice it, it doesn't cost you anything. But if you use it to attack somebody and they have a friend who's suspicious and they have an office mate me who has a iPhone lying around to test on well my office mate bill took that iPhone set it up clicked on the suspicious link and captured that exploit and once that exploit gets captured then you notify apple apple fixes it and the bad dudes are now out a need the need to replace a 1.1 $1. 1 to $1. 1.5 million dollar asset so Whenever you're a bad dude who has a zero day, you always have to ask yourself, am I feeling lucky? Because every (laughs) use runs a risk of taking a very expensive asset and reducing its value to near zero. So that's why if you're like me and not worth a million dollars to attack, I just use an iPhone and I'm happy with.
0: There was a story that I saw of uh, it was a journalist, I believe, somewhere in the Middle East, who was rightfully suspicious, uh, being you know being a journalist, being a whistleblower type, or the type that would be trying to release uh, information that perhaps their their government would not be happy for them releasing. Uh, got some sort of uh, notification on their phone that said that you know click here to do something, and and they were suspicious enough that they took it to a. Uh, Someone like yourself, actually, I believe it was a... In uh, fact,
1: actually, this is the case that I'm talking about. Ahmed Mansour in the United Arab Emirates contacted Bill Marzak, who's my office mate, who sent out email going, anybody have a spare iPhone? And my great contribution to that was taking my girlfriend's old iPhone, using it for erasing it, providing it to Bill so he could use it and then I had to buy an iPod Touch to replace it because that's what she was going to use it for and so uh, cost of replacement iPod Touch uh, $250 <laughs> knowing that I burned or knowing that by spending that $250 it burned the asset of a million dollars used by repressive Middle Eastern regime priceless that (laughs) felt so good um and the net result is that attack cost a huge amount because not only did it end up burning the UAE's uh, zero day that was being used not just by the UAE, but others, but also provided a hook by which uh, Bill was able to map out uh, NSO group infrastructure. So if you look at the cost of that failed attack, um, it's in the multi-millions of dollars. And unfortunately, the uh, government there the UAE government has decided uh, it's cheaper just to arrest Mansoor and he's been held in jail for uh, two months now, incommunicado. Wow.
0: Wow. Small. Wow. wow. So you also mentioned uh, a concept to me called forever days. What do you mean by that?
1: So the opposite of a zero day is one that anybody can use because it's never patched at all. So let's take a Galaxy S3 that up until a few months ago was regularly in the hands of, in the little tiny fingers of somebody doing irate tweets from the Oval Office. (laughs) Now, that phone is vulnerable to stage fright. So if you wanted to exploit that phone, what you have to do is you just have to download an exploit for stage fright, cost near zero, download some malcode package to go with it, cost near zero, and tweet a link saying, proof that National Park's crowd-sized estimates for inauguration (laughs) fraudulent, and said, tiny little fingers, click on that link, and now you take over the phone that's being used in who knows where, um, because you can bet that he took it in, places he shouldn't have (laughs) and that's a forever day that's a vulnerability that will always exist in that phone because you will never get an update and this is such a problem that like today we heard about ransomware attacking hospitals and one of the problems with hospitals is a lot of equipment is running windows xp certified to only run windows xp that if you update the software, you're no longer in compliance, and therefore you're running illegal, unregulated equipment. So as a consequence, those vulnerabilities will be there forever, or until the equipment is tossed out the window or set on fire.
0: <laughs> so now I know, I know you also work at uh, do some work with lawfare. So and, and we've gotten a little bit off in the weeds, but I want to I want to ask one more question here, and then we'll circle back to some of the the more mundane things. Um, is there a solution to this? That in in the law, is there? Is it because we don't have any sort of uh, regulation or uh, anything around software? Because software, you, you you click the little agree button to a, you know a multi page document in the end user license agreement, basically absolving them of any wrongdoing that may happen as a result of using their software. And that's kind of as a software engineer, I know that that is the way a lot of software works. It's de- delivered as is. And and if there's a if there's a bug in it, that's not our problem. Now they have reputations to rep, to, to keep up. A lot of these companies do, and that is what drives them in a lot of cases to fix these things. But is there some sort of a liability that is missing from our legal system, or is, is there some some part of the marketplace that is failing that allows these things to to, to work this way? If, if a car fell apart while you were driving it, that's 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 straightforward. But if the software in that car malfunctions, it's not
1: security is a market failure there is a huge market failure on security and there is no libertarian solution to market failure it needs either regulation or liability or something but it's gonna have to be one of those things or we're going to keep being in this dismal environment we're in
0: yeah all right, so let, let's back up a little bit. So we talked about mobile, but before we leave mobile, it, you know, what, what things should we all be doing? Should we be using pins on our to, on our, to, to access the phone? What about fingerprint readers, uh, things like that? What, what are some mobile tips?
1: Well, it depends on your threat model. So a pin is a really good idea. The fingerprint reader, depending on your phone, is a really good idea because my threat model is lost phone, stolen phone, not arrest. If I'm, say, an activist in Moscow, there's no way I'm using a fingerprint reader because then my threat model is they grab, grab me and my phone and press my thumb down. Mm-hmm. So it starts with the threat model. Um, the phone, however, iPhones are really nice. Pins are really good. Backups are important. So what happens if your phone catches on fire? Do you lose anything? Yeah, um, that's actually a very useful thing. Um, find my iPhone and activation locks on those are really good because that in removes a huge disincentive for theft. So, like, I admit I'll keep my phone plugged in in my car when I go out and run an errand um, just simply because I know it's not useful for a thief because let's steal a tracking device that I can't resell. Uh, uh, No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I actually use this myself. I was out in LA with my family and I, uh, we were at Universal Studios out in LA and I lost my phone in one of the rides. I didn't realize actually at the time I just knew that, Hey, wait a minute. I was about to take a picture and my phone was gone. Uh, so I got home that night. I, of course, had informed the park and I got home that night and I was able to pull up, find my iPhone and pinpoint my phone within Universal Studios lot. And then I saw them pick it up and move it to the front office and I knew they had found it. So I, I love that feature. Um, yep. let's, let's, let's talk, let's about, talk about computers now. So we're at home and, and obviously with computers, particularly with your home computers, they don't usually leave your house. So the threat model there is, is pretty minimal. It's usually, uh, your online exposure. So we'll, we'll talk about that for sure. But then there's the laptops, which you do take out So Let's talk about computers and your home computers. What, what are the threats there? What, what the, for the everyday person, what are the kind of things they need to be watching out for for their, for their
1: computers? Well, the, the big threat is the criminals, that the guys who make money. And so there's basically two strains of real note. There's the ransomware where they take over your computer, encrypt all the stuff, and you have to pay X in Bitcoin or you'll never see your data again. And the solution for this is offline backup. So I have a backup that's a few weeks old to a few months old sitting in a safe deposit box. And I've got stuff online. And basically, the, the quip is, is if a disaster is such that I've lost meaningful amounts of data, I'm fighting off the zombie apocalypse and I don't care anymore. <laughs> but the real thing is, is what happens if your house burns down? Yeah, And that's really the equivalent of ransomware. So will you still have data if your house burns down? If the answer is yes, hakuna matata. You don't need to worry about (laughs) ransomware. If the answer is no, buy yourself an external drive and do backups. The other big thing is, and the other thing to keep out the ransomware is patch. Patch, 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 patch. The other thing... Is the online criminality, and they're mostly interested in getting your accounts for all sorts of purposes. And the way they break into your account is password reuse. We all hate passwords. Mm -hmm. We all are stupid and use the same password (laughs) for so many things. And it's not because we're stupid, it's because we can't remember passwords. So what they do is they break into a whole bunch of different sites and these are all available online, and they just get the passwords from there by just brute force guessing. So once you get the site, you can just try, the pa- try all the different passwords. Um, and they now know your password that you use on any site. So they get your email address. They get your password. Now they try to log in everywhere. And the goal is to really get your email account or something from there that they'll then spam or financial fraud or whatever. And so the key is you got to be immune from password reuse. And you also have to be immune from phishing because that's the other way they get those credentials. And so there are two things that are must-haves. First must-have is a password manager. This is a program that stores passwords for you and comes up with random passwords. I'm hugely partial to 1Password, but there are others that work just as well. The other is two-factor authentication, and in particular, the U2F security key. So these are uh, little devices that sit on your keychain. And both of these are important because they both allow you to get away from password reuse. They both make your life easier rather than harder because as two-factor, the security key is easy. I just plug it into my computer and press it, and that's all. I don't need to copy down numbers. I don't need to receive a text. I don't need to do anything. It actually makes my life easier. Similarly with my password manager, I don't even bother remembering any password other than the one for the password manager. I just do a keystroke to do a login. And in both of those cases, the device actually is keeping track of the site. So phishing domain that's different from the real domain won't even authenticate to these things. That these things can know the difference between Google and Google spelled with a zero.
0: So you did say a lot of things in there. So let's back up and unpack a few of those things. So you had said one password. So uh, uh, LastPass is one I often talk about. And the best, the best, the biggest difference between LastPass and one password, and there are many others that are also good, I think. But the the primary difference there, and I'd like to get your comment on, is one password is managed by you. Uh, it's not cloud based, which is to say that you know when you encrypt with your master password, your vault. Of passwords, all these wonderful, unique passwords for all these websites, it's encrypted in some little blob or whatever on your computer. And if you want to use that blob and be able to access your vault on multiple computers, it's on you to figure out how to make that happen. Now, you could just use Dropbox. They which...
1: actually make it easy.
0: Okay, go so ahead. So
1: they, they have trivial ties to Dropbox to do that. That's what I use. They also have a cloud service that supports this now. Hmm. So they've added in a cloud service support to make it really easy to set up. But by having always architected it with this model, you don't actually have to trust their cloud service. You only have to trust the software is actually encrypting the data.
0: Right, and that's usually what I've heard from either security buddies or p- folks that I, are, are uber paranoid. Is that they like the having the the, the two layers there, where that's two different people that you can trust independently. Where you might, where uh, instead of trusting one person with the whole shebang, right? So,
1: and it's it works that. One password doesn't have to trust Dropbox, but it works transparently. I set it up. It took me a couple minutes, and that was it. And now I've got my password store on my desktop, my laptop, my iPad, my uh, iPhone. And the other thing that I like is on the iPhone and iPad, they have good support for the fingerprint reader. So it keeps your decryption key in memory for one try on the fingerprint reader, and otherwise you have to type it back in.
0: So you're not, the, so then I, obviously you're not worried about the, your password vault being stored in the cloud. You're, you're, you feel comfortable, because I know some people just can't even stomach that, that they're
1: so paranoid. I know some people can't stomach that. I am willing to accept the risk-reward trade-off, because the reward is huge. The reward is I have all my passwords in one place. Yeah. no matter which place it is
0: yeah I, I i fall the same way and i think and one of the reasons I, that i that i usually uh, that i talk about these things with with folks is that there's always a trade-off of security it's always convenience versus you know security it's a it's a continuum and and it, at some point it becomes so unruly that folks just won't do it and as soon as folks won't do it it doesn't matter how good it is because you're not doing it so you also talked about U um, two U U2, two F or Alt, uh, Universal Two Factor, which is a form of multi-factor authentication. We've talked about that multi- multiple times on the show. It, the one thing I, that I like to ask you about with the U two F now that's something I've got to physically carry with me that I could, you know, I could lose. I, I know that that's also the same thing with your phone because, the way, that a lot of the other ones work is they'll either send you a text with the pin code, a one-time pin code, or you've got an app like Google Authenticator, which has a time-based rolling code. Um, and then there's this these actual physical keys where it's like you know you put your password in and you also insert this key into a USB drive, and that basically does this part of the process for you. Is there a particular reasons why why you favor the key over the, the other methods?
1: A, unlike uh, the the methods where you type something in, the key is verifying the site, so the key can't be fished either because the key is specifically going, knows the difference between Google and Google with a Cyrillic O. Mm. Um, And that's very important. So if uh, John Podesta used a U2F security key, the Russians would have been out of luck trying to get into his Google account.
0: The other thing I might notice, too is that there has been an attack on the cellular phone networks which we've known for a long time have not been that secure but in germany there's been it was just in other words it was a matter of time but some uh clever hackers in germany figured out a way to capture the the sms based keys through the cellular network uh, reroute them to their own to themselves and then use that you know they all they obviously had to break the original password but then they were able to get the key as well by hacking the network
1: yeah well with U2F, you don't have that because the key is a local device, but it's working with the browser, and so it knows what's going on, so it prevents you from messing up. All
0: right, so we're, we're getting a little bit toward the end, so I wanted to cover one more aspect before we, we quit, and that is uh, financial uh, security. So a lot of us do banking and things online. Some of I know a lot of people are worried about, for some reason, doing banking uh, online on, on their mobile devices as, as opposed to doing something on a computer. Let's talk a little bit about what the threats are there, or there how much you trust these kind of systems, and and any tips you might have for doing uh, any any financial-based stuff, including you know buying things online as well as actually talking to your bank and those sorts of things.
1: Well, first of all, phones, if they're iPhones, are stronger than computers, that iPhones are about the strongest consumer device you can buy. But Irregardless, it's not really the security but liability that matters. So as a consumer in the U.S., well, A, if somebody takes over my, my online Chase account, they can't necessarily do all that much because it's actually a real pain to transfer money to a random account. But critically, I'm also not liable. The bank is in case of fraud. This is very different with business accounts. So with business accounts, the criminal takes it over. It's much easier to transfer money from a business account and well, the business gets left holding the bag in case of fraud. So really? for person yes. So for personal use, I'll use online banking. For business accounts, I wouldn't trust it with a 10 meter pole that really? online? no, paper only because of the liability involved. Similarly, credit versus debit card. So I use my credit card everywhere. The only thing of real note on my credit card is I've got two of them so that if one gets canceled in the middle of a business trip due to fraud, I still have another one that works.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I've been there myself.
1: And the debit card is another story because although the debit card has the same fraud protections, which are very good for us people there's the transitory loss of the money's not in my account, and that can cause follow-up problems. So my debit card doesn't have a Visa logo on it. It's ATM only and only used at ATMs belonging to my bank. And that's basically risk mitigation, that I don't want to have to worry about my bank account being drained over the weekend.
0: So you mentioned two things there. So explain that. So why does it matter whether you use the ATM at your bank or not? Let's say it's an affiliated bank. And and why why do you remove it sounds like it's actually not a debit card at all. It's just a it's pure ATM card. Is that yes. what you're saying?
1: Yes, it's ATM only, which means it cannot be used except at physical ATMs. And I use ATMs only belonging to my bank because I'm cheap and I don't want to spend the extra <laughs> five bucks. And I use the physical ATMs at the bank locations because they're less likely to be tampered with. Because what they'll do, as bad guys will do, is insert little skimmers that will read the mag stripe of the card and steal the pin with the camera. And you don't do that at the ATM at the big major bank itself at the high traffic area because you have a much higher chance of getting caught
0: interesting yeah i've heard about the skimmers i didn't so the to be clear there's no security reason not to use a a, a, to go to some other affiliated large bank it's just it's more a matter of awarding the fees yep gotcha interesting very interesting all right well this is fantastic this is a lot of great info we covered a lot of ground uh a lot of ground so um I would I would like to bring up one one more thing, and that is traveling. So we did we we you've mentioned made multiple references to work, to being inside the U.S. So if I'm traveling, how do things change? And I know that we had a great episode a while back talking with the EFF about. Uh, the loss of even US citizens' rights at the borders. But going to foreign countries, i I read, for instance, I read an article uh, recently where the guy said, you know, I'm never going to take my devices on a trip anymore, and neither should you. And his point was, is that first of all, they could be lost or stolen. And if that happens, and you don't want to take your real devices, you want to take some cheapies, right? Some cheap burner phone kind of thing or a Chromebook or something like that you don't mind losing. But then also, you know, it doesn't have your life's, you know, information on it as well. Do you have any uh, tips for travelers? Anything? Any comments on along those lines?
1: Well, I'm a little bit more sanguine. I just use an iPhone. Um, I use a good password on it, and I power it off before going through customs on either side. And basically, if they want to search the phone, they keep the phone, and they're left with an encrypted brick that, <laughs> since I'm using a five-word password and good chosen random words on an iPhone with the whole secure enclave that I would be happy handing it to a party gang from the DGSE, the NSA and Chinese intelligence and have fun boys and (laughs) leave it behind.
0: Wow. That is saying quite a bit, especially from somebody with your background. All right. So
1: also I know there'd be nothing of value once they get in (laughs) it anyway. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh so wrapping up here, if you had to, if you had to wrap all this up in the top, I don't know, three, four, five tips that you'd give to regular people, what are the things that everybody should be doing?
1: Number one, patch, 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 patch. That's five. So let's go on <laughs> with uh three more. Um use a security key. Other two factors good, but security keys are the best. Use a password manager. And if your phone doesn't say iPhone or Pixel on the back, throw it in the trash and get yourself an iPhone.
0: (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Thank you very much, Nick Weaver. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on. And thank you for taking the time to talk to our audience. And that's going to wrap up another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We don't have time for any of your listener questions this week. I'm sorry about that, but I will get to them. Uh, in the meantime, please send me your questions at Parker at americaoutloud.com. You can find my email address on the website. Uh, you can also find also uh, helpful links that uh, uh, from this podcast, that you might. Uh, some of the things that we mentioned in the interview and some of the things I mentioned before. If you think you might have a problem with this Windows virus, I've got some links for you to check out just in case if you want to double check and be absolutely sure. And also, I want to throw out one little public service announcement. Uh, the current FCC is looking to roll back net neutrality and well, I'm sure we'll have a whole episode of the, on that at some point, but I'm here to tell you that net neutrality is a good thing. Something that we need to preserve. Uh, it's going to allow the next Netflix or the next small company to come along and, and come out with some great services, uh, that will just not be allowed to see the light of day if they don't have a fair and even playing field. So, uh, if you like, uh, comedy and you don't mind a little bit of, uh, little bit of swearing with your comedy, check out John Oliver uh, on the web. I'll provide a link on the website. You can check it out. He gives a great little roundup about net, re- net neutrality. But crucially, at the very end, he, he tells you how to make sure that you get your voice heard by the FCC. Uh, <laughs> the FCC make, made it kind of difficult to find the place where you could provide comments online, and John Oliver made it easy. Uh, he created a website called <clears throat> Go FCC Yourself, uh, you can see what that is a play on. Uh, <laughs> and it jumps you right to the area on the FCC website where you can uh, leave comments and express your opinions. And I highly encourage everybody to do that. Okay, everybody, that's it. I got to wrap it up here. Hope you uh, stay safe out there. And until next time, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. See you next week.